Welcome to the audio podcast of Believer's House. We are a multi-generational, multi-ethnic church in the city of Halifax, Nova Scotia, called to lead people to Jesus, make them more like Him, and see them lead others to Him. We hope this message you are about to listen to inspires you to become more like Jesus in your thoughts, words, and actions. So, just to give you a little background, um, my name is Cindy, and around here they call me Grandma Cindy, which is kind of an honor. And uh, an honor probably that, to me, if I could explain who I am to you and where I came from, I used to be in a place of absolute torment, depression, and anxiety in my life. As a matter of fact, as a believer, I was saved in 1981, and for eight years, even though I was saved, I lived in absolute misery. I was tormented by depression. I was tormented by anxiety. I'm talking tormented and had no idea how to get free. And so today I want to talk to you about a subject that's very dear to my heart. And it is the blessedness of brokenness. And I want to explain to you through the Word of God and also through my own testimony how God can take broken people and can teach them how to walk in victory and how to become an overcomer. Tomorrow is my mom's birthday. My mom will be 96 years old tomorrow, and she lives with us. And I was, as I was thinking about this message and thinking about stories, this story came to my mind. I was about seven years old, and uh, that would put you back to about 1962, so a few years ago, okay? (laughs) And in that time, we used to get an allowance of 25 cents a week, and that was a big deal. And so I knew my mother's birthday was coming up, and so I diligently saved my allowance for six weeks so that I had $1.50. And I walked into a little variety store on the way home from school, and in there was this little China beagle dog. Now, my mother doesn't like dogs. She never had a dog. Why I got it in my head that my mother needed this dog, I have no idea. But I took in my hard-saved $1.50, and I bought this little China dog. And they put it, I still remember, they put it in this little brown paper bag, and I'm trucking home from the store after school with a big grin on my face because I have a present for my mom. However, on the way home, I tripped and fell. And when I did, I ripped out all the knees of my stockings, my knees were bleeding, and the dog was smashed into hundreds of pieces, literally. And so I come in the house on my mom's birthday wailing, because I busted her birthday present, and I busted my knees, and I tore my socks. And my dear mother sat with a bottle of glue, I remember this, for hour upon hour upon hour, and put this dog back together. Now, it didn't look anything like it did when I bought it, but it was put together, okay? And so, just come away from that story for a minute, and I want to take you to the beginning of this year. 
I came into this house on December the 11th, 2022, and I came in with fourth stage metastatic breast cancer that had metastasized to my spine. And I had been in a two-year-long year battle with chemo and radiation and surgery and everything you can imagine. But I also had the Word of God. And even when I wasn't well enough to sit up and open my Bible, I would strap the Word of God to my head and listen to it because I knew that my only hope was to get close to Jesus and to allow his word to flow through me. On December 31st of 2022, I came here to the New Year's Eve service. Folks, if you're watching online and you've never come to this place, I'm encouraging you to come because the manifest presence of God is here. Pastor Sheen and Okechiku laid hands on me and prayed, and I felt the manifest presence of God flow from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. Let me tell you, Jesus made a way. He made a way. Never said anything to anybody. Went for a CAT scan on February 1st, and that CAT scan came back and said, there is no evidence of cancer anywhere in her body. Went for another bone scan a few weeks later. Same thing, came back, no evidence of anything. Not only was the cancer gone, but when they did the last uh, scan that they did, there was no arthritis left in my spine. The doctor was amazed. He said, it's just like a brand new spine. And so he can make a way wherever you are. And so this January, I usually seek God at the beginning of the year, and I say, God, what do you want me to study this year? What do you want me to, to really pour into this year? And my mandate this year was study all the words of Jesus. And so that's what I've been doing. I've been up to here in all the words of Jesus. And I want to tell you, in my life, when I read them, there is life and the breath of God that is breathed into me. There is a changing in the inner man that I'm noticing day by day. I am noticing that as I'm reading his words through the Gospels and I'm watching who he has touched, who he has ministered to, I'm seeing that people's destinies were changed forever for listening to the words of Christ. It says in Matthew 4, verse 23, Jesus was going through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Jesus' teachings were simple, and yet they were profound. They were backed up by the kingdom of God's authority because every aspect of his life was submitted to God the Father. They brought moral renovation to people's hearts. 
Regardless of their age, regardless of their circumstances, his words were always able to meet us where we're at, to meet them where they were at. And I thank God because in my life, God has met me on so many occasions when it looked like you were down for the count, and he has always brought me through. His words have always brought resurrection power and life into my life. And I'm so thankful for that today. Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy. And of course, we know he defeated him with the word of God. And then in Luke 4, 18, verse 21, it says that he stood up in the synagogue and he read this passage from Isaiah that said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. It's interesting as you read on in this passage, the different reactions people had to the words of Jesus. First, it said all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips in verse 22. But then in a very short moment, in verse 28, it says all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up, they drove him out of the city, and they led him to a brow on the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Have you ever felt like throwing Jesus off a cliff when you heard his words? Not so much. Think about where their hearts were. The Son of God, God incarnate, was standing before them, speaking words of life, and their reaction was, we're going to throw him off a cliff. Often the scriptures contrast people's response to Jesus' words. We get the extreme reactions of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, but then we get the reactions of common people like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus couldn't wait to meet Jesus. It says he was short of stature in Luke 19. It says that he crawled up in a tree so that he could see Jesus. That's pretty hungry. If Pastor Sean was out in a field and preaching the word of God, would we want to crawl up in a tree to make sure that we didn't miss a word of what he was saying? Because he's pronouncing the word of God to us. That's pretty hungry. So it says he ran on ahead in verse 4 and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And they hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they began to grumble, saying, He has gone to the guest, 
of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus wasn't bothered by that. It says he stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. Luke chapter 20 says that the chief priests tried to lay hands on Jesus. In verse 18, they watched him, they sent spies, they pretended to be righteous, they questioned him. And yet in that passage, it said Jesus saw their trickery. When he entered the temple in Luke chapter 19, verse 45, he went in to clean out the synagogue because they were using it, the money changers were using it to make money. And he said, no, no, my house will be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers. So they were trying to destroy him, and yet some of the people were hanging on every word he said. Can you see the two extremes? One is the stance of religion that knows the word of God but doesn't know Jesus. And the other is people who don't know anything except they want to know Jesus. Zacchaeus embraced Jesus. The rich young ruler in Matthew 19 walked away. Jesus challenged him about the commandments. And he said, yes, Lord, I have kept all of these commandments. And then Jesus challenged him and said, go and sell your possessions and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Some openly received the words of Jesus some openly oppose them. So my question today is this, and I'm asking this of myself. What are we doing with the words of Christ? Are we hungering for them? Are we thirsting for them? Are we wanting to walk in obedience to them? Enter my story. Take me back into the 80s. As I was telling you, I was completely miserable. I was so miserable in my lifetime that I had tried to take my life seven times. That's how much I lived under the veil of depression. And I can remember from the smallest memory, like being two years old, still wearing white boots on my feet, baby boots. And I can remember in those days thinking, I want to be dead. So I made a perfect plan one day, I thought. I gathered enough prescriptions, enough pills. I was a nurse. I knew what would kill me. I checked myself into a hotel room under an assumed name. 
so that no one would find me, and I took them all. So why am I standing here? Because God made a way. God made a way. My husband was out driving in a car with one of his police friends, looking for me all over the city because he knew something was wrong. They looked on every hotel. They went in with their badges into every hotel. And of course, they even went into the hotel I was in. But they did not find me because I had not put my real name down. Wayne sat outside in a car on Roby Street in Halifax and prayed and said, God, show me where she is. And you know what God did? He spoke to my husband in an audible voice and told him what hotel I was in and what room I was in. God made a way. He came into that hotel, and of course I was transported to a hospital. I was actually in a psychiatric hospital because they locked me up for two months, wouldn't let me out. And I'm standing here today. I am standing here today because God made a way. And after that time, I can remember going home. I was at, at released from the hospital. I remember going home and thinking to myself, I can't succeed at anything. This was my thinking. I cannot succeed. I can't even kill myself and succeed. That was my thinking. That's how bad the strongholds were in my mind. And I remember Jocelyn and Jennifer went out to school that day. They were young children. And I went up into my bed. Wayne went to work. I went up into my bedroom, and I fell down on my knees beside my bed, and I started to weep and say, Dear God, I don't know how to live as a Christian. I don't know how to have victory. I don't know how to do anything. There was a brokenness that was on me, and God met me there, he made a way there. He showed up in that room, and I can tell you, I saw the glorious light of Christ come into that room. And from that moment on, my life changed forever. Now think about this. I'm probably the worst nightmare any church would have wanted to have in those days. And in that room, God said to me, I'm calling you. I'm calling you to teach. I'm calling you to do these different things. I want you to go to Bible school. Well, I went down to the Bible school to sign up, and they kind of looked at me like, you got to be kidding. There's no way we're letting you in here, right? And so I went home, and I prayed, and I said, God, you said this, so you have to do it. He made a way, and I went to Bible school, okay? And I watched as God rearranged me. I went into a class in that school. It was called the Purified Heart. And God broke me down in that class in such a good way. He began to show me all the strongholds and the bitterness and the garbage that was in my heart. And he began to come in and rearrange and cleanse me. 
And I want to tell you, through every class, I sat in that classroom and I wept and cried. I didn't care what anyone thought. I just wanted God to fix me. And so I was willing to humble myself. I just didn't care. So the message today is called The Blessedness of Brokenness. And we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, there's a couple of things you want to notice here in these first two verses. First of all, Jesus sat down. That is not a nothing thing. When a rabbi in their culture sat down to teach, it meant that he was going to teach something very important. The other thing you want to notice in those verses is that he opened his mouth. That isn't just a Greek way of saying he spoke. That is the Greek way of saying that he was going to open his mouth in such a way that he was going to pour his heart into them. This was a very serious thing that he was going to begin to teach them. It was something that he wanted them to order their lives around. Pastor Sean's been teaching us that being is more important than doing. And the Beatitudes are all about who am I? What am I? What is my attitude? What am I being? So here is Jesus sitting down. He's going to pour out the deepest, most important things of his heart on the disciples. And it says that he taught them saying. In the Greek, that verb means this wasn't a one-time teaching. This is something that Jesus continually taught his disciples. First beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of the beatitudes were spoken in the same format. Blessed are. Pastor Sean's taught us many times that if you see something in your Bible that's in italics, it wasn't really there in the original translation. It's just there to bring clarity. And so the actual format of the Beatitudes came out of the Psalms. Psalm 1-1 says, Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked. Same format. Or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. A better way of putting this to get an understanding of what it actually said is, oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be blessed? It means to have inner happiness, great happiness and great contentment. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? In the Greek, there are two words that are used for the word poor. One of them is called pennies, P-E-N-E-S, and it speaks of the kind of poor 
where a person is working and trying to make their way in life and they're kind of living from paycheck to paycheck. They never have an abundance and yet they do have enough to eat. But the word that is used here, blessed are the poor in spirit, is a different word. It's the word tokus. It doesn't mean just simply poor. It means a poverty that causes them to have no influence, no power, no prestige. It means they were downtrodden and oppressed. It means they had no earthly resources whatsoever. They were in such a state that they had to completely lean on the resources of God because they had none of their own. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means that we have come to a realization in my life, in our lives, that I have nothing outside of Christ. And yet in Christ, I have everything. I've learned that in my life. I've learned that when I've been up against the wall, as the song said, that I have nothing to get me over that wall. But when I humble myself before Almighty God and I allow him to fill me and teach me his word, he gets me up over the wall. It's interesting, in Matthew, there are eight Beatitudes in chapter 5. In chapter 23, Jesus spoke eight woes to the Pharisees. Complete opposites. Complete opposites. It's interesting that the word blessed in the Greek is the exact opposite of the word woe. Isaiah 57.15 says this, Thus says the high and exalted one. We have been exalting Christ this morning who lives forever, whose name is holy. It says, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that God is enthroned in the heavens above every principality, above, above every rule, above everything. And yet, he comes and dwells with us when we are contrite and broken in spirit. He comes and dwells with the poor in spirit. In the New Revised Standard Version of that same verse, it says that he inhabits eternity. And it says he's also with those who are contrite and humble in spirit. Have you thought of God in terms of eternity? Because we are very linear, right? We have a past, we're in the present, and we have a future. But God is outside of all of that. God knows your past, he knows your present, he knows your future, and he is the great I am, he is in it all. The great I am is with you in everything, at every circumstance, at every time. 
The Amplified Bible says this, Thus says the high and lofty one, he who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, but with him also who is of a thoroughly penitent and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the thoroughly penitent, bruised with sorrow for sin. So if I asked you the question, what is brokenness? What is a contrite heart? What does true humility look like before God? I can tell you what it's not. It isn't that broken mess that I used to be. That's not true brokenness and contrite heart. It is not always being sad and depressed and gloomy. It's not being morbidly introspective. It isn't a false humility that walks around our whole life and says, woe is me. It is not a preoccupation with yourself. Because that's what the enemy wants. He wants us to be preoccupied and focused on us. He wants our flesh to be ruling. Brokenness is not just an emotional experience where we cry all the time. Trust me, I've been there. Didn't do a thing for me. Although there are times when the Spirit of God gets on us that we will weep. But it's not because we're depressed. Brokenness is not remorse. It's not being sorry for what I did. It's not tragedy. It's not being embarrassed. Trust me, I know about being embarrassed. I've done a few things in my life where I was completely, utterly embarrassed. Here's a good one just to lighten it up a bit. I used to play in an orchestra in a church, and it was a fairly large orchestra. Dorcas is smiling because she knows the story. And it was Easter, it was Easter Sunday, and we were going to play Handel's Messiah Hallelujah Chorus. Okay? Now, the tradition around the world, the first time that the Messiah was ever played, it was so exalting to Christ because all the words of the Messiah are all out of Isaiah that the king, when he heard it, stood to his feet during the Hallelujah Chorus and started worshiping God right in the middle of the concert. So here we are, we're going to play the Hallelujah Chorus, and I'm in an orchestra which is sort of down in a pit in the church, and the church was large and had balconies and probably 1,500 to 2,000 people sitting there. And we stood up to play the Hallelujah Chorus, and my slip fell off. My slip fell completely off. So here I am, I'm standing here playing the violin, hallelujah, and my slip is down around my ankles. And I heard, I heard one of my friends sitting up in the balcony laughing, like you could hear her laughing all over the church. And so I'm standing here playing the violin, trying to get this slip off my feet without missing a note and shoving it back under my chair. So see, brokenness is not that kind of brokenness. It's not embarrassment. You know that to be truly broken, to be truly contrite, it will take a choice of your will. It is a choice. And it's a choice to live there, to live in a constant lifestyle that says, God, 
Yes, sir. Whatever you want, I will do. Whatever you want me to speak, I will say. Wherever you want me to go, I will go. Brokenness is coming into agreement with God about the true condition of my heart. And so sometimes in Christianity, we want to put on the mask that says, I'm holy, I'm righteous, I'm good. And we are in Christ. I'm not saying we're not, because he imparted his righteousness to us. But we never want to take it down to say, help. I need help, God. Tola was so vulnerable today, and I thank you for that. Sometimes we need to reach out to God and say, help. And sometimes we need to reach out to the rest of the body of Christ and say, help. I'm struggling in this way. This is where James said, confess your faults to one another that you might be healed. To have a broken spirit is to allow God to shatter your will. Because our will often does not want to do what God wants us to do. I remember years ago when God began to uh, speak to me about praying and praying for our nation. And this is quite a number of decades ago now, but he would wake me up at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, I want you to pray for Canada. Morning after, Wayne will tell you, morning after morning after morning, I crawled out of a warm, comfortable bed and said, yes, Lord, I will pray for Canada. Do you know that that's never stopped? He wakes me up all hours of the night and says, pray. Pray for the nation. Pray for the lost. Pray for the people in your church. Pray for your pastors. Pray. Is it easy? No. Does my flesh want to do it? No. Does he enable me to do it? Absolutely, yes, he does. And I'm not saying that all of you are called to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to pray. I'm just saying, what is it God is asking you to do? And what are you willing to say no to your flesh in order to advance the kingdom of God? Staying in a broken and contrite heart is keeping the soil of your heart good. So when the word of God comes forth, it comes into good soil. And in that good soil, God grows a harvest. God produces fruit. That abiding in him, that constant reliance on him, is where he begins to sow the seeds of his life, his word, his strength into the soil of your heart, and you begin to bring forth fruit for the kingdom. To be broken and contrite is the exact opposite of pride. I don't know about you, but I have to battle pride constantly. Constantly, I have to say, no, not my will, your will be done. Constantly, I have to remind myself, Cindy can do nothing without Christ. 
It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why is it? I'll tell you why. Because a person who has a broken and contrite heart, who recognizes that they are poor in spirit, is humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God and allowing the kingdom rule to run their lives. Heaven is able to rule in a heart that is poor in spirit. Heaven is able to rule when we allow God to be the master and the Lord of our lives. So I'm going to give you three measurements today of a broken and contrite heart. Number one is living a lifestyle that is obedient to the word of God. When you open the scriptures and read it, we need to be obedient to what we read. When we hear the word preached from the pulpit, from our pastors, we need to be obedient to what they are teaching us. When God speaks to you in the night seasons or in your prayer times and he says, Pastor Dorcas, I want you to do this. We need to be obedient to that. We can look at constant examples in Scripture of those who obeyed and those didn't. Let's look at Saul and David for a minute. King Saul was anointed of God in the beginning of his ruler rulership. When he was anointed of God, he was out prophesying with the prophets. So did he have the real anointing of God on him? Yes, he did. And yet when he went in to battle the Amalekites, the commandment that God gave him was go strike Amalek, utterly destroy all that he has, do not spare him, put to death both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. And then the story continues in 1 Samuel 15, verse 7 to 9. It says that Saul did defeat the Amalekites, but he kept the king alive. And he did not utterly destroy everything. They kept what looked good for themselves. Realize in that moment, everything changed for Saul. Everything. He lost his kingdom. He lost his peace. Remember how David would have to come and serenade him with the harp to, to get the evil spirits off of him? He lost everything because he only partially obeyed God. When he was confronted by Samuel the prophet, all that he did was say, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people. He was more concerned about what people thought than he was about God. And we know the tragedy in which his life ended. Think about it. Saul could have been consulting the most high God. And in the end of his life, he was consulting the witch of Endor. How sad is that? 
That's not what God wants for us. God wants us to come to him and be willing to be contrite and humble before him so that he can speak the words of life, so that he can speak the words of victory, so that he can speak the words of power, the words of healing in our life. King David sinned as well. Matter of fact, I think he did some pretty scary stuff. <laughs> he took Bathsheba, and then he had her husband killed. But when Nathan the prophet came to him, there was such a different response. He said, create in me a clean heart in Psalm 51. He said, be gracious to me according to your loving kindness. Wash me thoroughly. Do not cast me away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And he closed that psalm in verse 16 by saying, for you do not delight in sacrifice Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So measurements of a broken or a contrite life. Number one, you walk in obedience. You live in a lifestyle of obedience to the word. Number two, you live a life of humility by praying. Praying is not just bringing my grocery list to God. Not that we can't bring supplications, not that we can't bring petitions to God, but God wants us to humble ourselves and get into a real relationship with him where we allow him to examine us and where we allow him to speak his authority, his kingdom life into my life, where I'm vulnerable enough and I trust him enough that I say, God, search me. See if there's any wicked way in me. And when he does search us and shine the spotlight, remember, it's never to condemn us, ever. It's always to lift us up higher, to cleanse us, to bring us into a deeper walk and relationship with him. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, tells us the story of two people who came in to pray before the Lord. It was a parable that Jesus told. So starting in verse 10, it says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Oops. He prayed it to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Imagine he's actually pointing out the guy that's praying beside him. Help us, Lord. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. I don't know if you, if you folks are accustomed to this in North America, but we have this thing where we go, and then we kind of do this, and it means, look what I did. Right? And I can picture that Pharisee before God just, 
look what I did, God, right? I can picture that. Meanwhile, the tax collector, and remember, they were hated, is standing some distance away, was even unwilling to look up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you ever notice in Scripture that people like Moses spent 40 years in the backside of the wilderness? Why? Think of it. He came out of Egypt educated by the top educators of the world. He would have had skill and oratory powers. He would have had everything you can imagine that would be successful in this world's eyes. And yet God took him and put him on the backside of a desert looking after sheep for 40 years before he ever called him out to deliver Egypt. 1 Peter 5, verse 5 and 6 says, You younger men, be subject to your elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. I think our prayer life is like a thermometer. As a nurse, you would know this, Tola. As a nurse, you check vital signs. You check blood pressures, you check pulse, you check temperatures because they can tell you about the condition of that person. I think my prayer life tells something about my condition when it comes to my abiding in Christ. Because if I'm not praying, then what I'm really saying is I can do this without God. Every time we bow before the Lord and say, God, help me, we are humbling ourselves and allowing him to be my strength and my power and my grace. There's two songs you can sing. One of them is the old Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way. And you might not be familiar with, I did it my way. And it goes on and on about all he did and how he did it his way. But we need to sing the song that says, Jesus, I surrender all. My life, my breath, everything in me belongs to you. Everything. My time belongs to you. My money belongs to you. My giftings belong to you. Everything I have, the breath that I'm breathing today is because God put it there. What a wonderful Savior that we serve. Why would we not want to just run into his presence and say, God, have your way. So number one, we're living a lifestyle of obedience to the word of God. Number two, we're living a lifestyle that humbles 
ourselves and prays and puts ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And number three, we will be living as a minister of reconciliation. See, when you get in God's presence and you begin to submit yourself to the presence of God and the heart of God, he begins to impart his heart to us. We will begin to have the eyes of Christ when it comes to the prodigals of this world and also the lost of this world. We all know the story of the prodigal son. He got his father's wealth. He went out. He wasted it all. He ended up in a pig pen. Trust me, Jewish folks did not end up in pig pens. So he was pretty low on the, on the scale. And I love what it says because it says he came to his senses. I remember the day I came to my senses. And it took me saying, this is where I'm at, God. Help. I came to my senses, and my father was waiting on the hill for me. And when I returned, he gave me a robe, and he gave me a ring, and he restored everything the enemy had taken from me. What a wonderful privilege we have to be ministers of reconciliation. We get to go help the people in the pig pens, not that we're judging them. We get to go and show them the love of Christ. We get to restore to them everything the enemy has stolen. That won't happen without prayer. It's praying that changed my heart. Yes, we pray to change the world, but I need to pray first that my heart becomes like the heart of the Father. Sometimes I get out driving in a car, and we can be on the highway, and I start seeing cars coming the other way. I see them coming. Car after car, hundreds of cars passing along the highway, and something overtakes me. And I know it's the Spirit of God. And I begin to weep and pray in the car for those souls. And I say, God, who are those people in those cars? How do we reach them? Show me how, God. Show me where. Show me when. I don't go in the grocery store that I don't say, God, show me somebody I can reach for Christ. Show me somebody in the library, wherever I go. Dear God, give me souls for your kingdom. I can't do that. God did that in me. He imparted something to me. Cindy didn't care about the lost before. The story of the prodigal, there was the elder brother. Instead of rejoicing that his brother had been saved and delivered and brought home, he was jealous and mad.
His father said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has now been found. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 23, verse 13, Jesus said this to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Understand today that I'm not standing here saying you're all a bunch of Pharisees. I'm not saying that. But I'm, what I am saying is that we need to be careful of that. We need to be careful that we don't become so busy doing church that we forget about what the real kingdom of God is about. We need to be careful that we don't get so caught up in the cares of this world and paying our bills and everything that we're doing that we forget that God has a heart that wants to reach this world. And so I want to leave you with three questions today. I want you to shut yourself in with God and ask yourself these questions honestly. Am I living a lifestyle of obedience to the Word of God? Am I living a life of humility and prayer before God? Am I living as a minister of reconciliation towards the lost and the prodigals? There may be people online today that are listening that you have never known what it is to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's simple. To surrender to Christ is to say, I'm no, gonna, I'm no longer going to live my life for just what I want. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's simple for all of us. Jesus said there's two commands. Love God with your whole heart, your whole mind, and your whole strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Going to give you a little checklist to see which side we're standing on. Because there's proud people on one side and there's broken people, contrite people on the other. Proud people are always comparing themselves to others rather than the standard of God. Broken people are more conscious of their own spiritual need than anyone else's. 
Proud people are busy trying to pick the splinter out of their brother's eye and are oblivious to the log in their own. Broken people are compassionate. They have a desire to encourage. They have a desire to lift people up, to take the people that have fallen and stand them up on their feet. Proud people are very critical of the authorities over them. Trust me, I've been on the proud side. I've had to repent. They will not submit and they will not commit. Broken people reverence, encourage, and pray for the leaders God has placed over them. Proud people have an independent and self-sufficient spirit. They are lone rangers. Broken people are utterly dependent on God and on the rest of the body of Christ. I love you. I mean you. God loves you. Thank you for listening to this message from Believer's House. We hope you've been blessed. Please visit us at www.believershouse.church for more information about our church or to send us your questions, comments, and feedback. We hope to see you again soon.